Adventure Through the Bible podcast. My name is Matt. Today I want to present you with a special episode. This is a message that I gave a couple of years ago at my church. I wanted to put it here after we have just gotten through that whole book of Leviticus and the laws and regulations and such that were there. I was going to put this originally right after our Ten Commandments episode, but something told me back then just kind of hold off. So uh, I waited and I had an opportunity to do it here. The concept of this message is that law and grace go hand in hand. One is not separate from the other. And um, I guess I'll just let it speak for itself. So here we go. I will present you now with my message, Graceful Law. I don't look very official anyway today. We got this Sabbath in the sand thing going. It's funny. I'm, I'm just old enough to remember hearing stories about parents who wouldn't let their kids go in the water past their knees if it was Sabbath. Any of you here remember those rules? Yeah. Couldn't ride your bike, couldn't swim, which I think is crazy because I imagine six days of creation, God finishes up by putting man in the garden with Eve, and then he's going to say, look at that wonderful pond I made for you. Don't go in it today. <laughs> Can you imagine that? That's just goofy. But um, so, yeah, and I mean, I just, I just feel kind of funny being dressed like this. I'm glad Kevin showed up to show us all that we're dressed correctly today. <laughs> um, but, you know, I mean, usually when I get up here to preach, I put on a suit. That's just what I do, you know. Um, not everybody does, and I don't think you should be uncomfortable when you're worshiping, because if you're uncomfortable when you're worshiping, you're not worshiping, you know. But um, it is funny that we've had all these rules that we've followed for a long time, but it's because we think Sabbath is important. You want to try to encourage your friends and family to follow suit with what you have discovered is a wonderful thing in our lives, the Sabbath. And it's just as likely that those loved ones, if they are Christians already, will begin to argue with you about the validity of the Sabbath. You've probably had a conversation with them that goes a little bit something like this. You know, the seventh day is the Sabbath. And there might be some variation in that opening line. You might be like, man, there's really blessing in the Sabbath. Or there might be something like, you know, this is the day of worship. You know, you might open it somehow but almost invariably, you're going to get the same answer. You know we're not under the law anymore, right? And you're going to be like, yeah, I know. And they're going to be like, well, we're under grace. Yes. So the Sabbath was done away with. Um, no. The law was nailed to the cross. Well, kind of. The law was done away with when Jesus died. Oh, really? So I can murder you, sleep with your wife, steal your TV, and that's all good? Well, no, of course not. The law is in our hearts. So it still exists, and we should follow it, right? Well, yeah, but not the Sabbath. Um, why not? Because we're saved by grace. And it'll go around in this circle over and over and over. We're saved by grace. I know. So you should, but we should. No, we're saved by grace. I know. <laughs> Who's on first? Yeah. And 
It will just go around like that with you insisting that the Sabbath is good and your friend being, telling you that you're being nothing but legalistic and you're trying to be saved by works instead of grace. Invariably, if your friend has Bible knowledge, they will start to quote the book of Romans to you. Now, where it kind of boils down to for me is that I think we all have this understanding. We are saved by grace and we want to keep the law. But we have a hard time figuring out how to articulate that to our friends. So what I want to do today, I'm not, I don't think I'm going to be teaching anybody anything new today. What I really want to do is just, this is an exercise for me to come to terms with how to put this into words. And it's the idea that God's law and God's grace are not at odds with each other. So this isn't really, this isn't a sermon about the Sabbath. This is, this is a sermon about how God's law and God's grace work together in our salvation. So I, if you, you might want to open your Bibles today. I'm going to be talk, speaking only from the book of Romans today because that is the book that always gets tossed up whenever we start to talk about law and grace. And so I'm going to preach only from Romans today. We're going to start in chapter 1. We're going to work through a few chapters. I'm not going to go through the whole book. We'd be here all day. But, um, oh, was that a sound of disappointment? <laughs> I could probably go longer. I can make things up as we go. But now before, there are some things we have to understand about Romans. The first thing being that the book was likely written before any of the Gospels were written which means that Paul didn't have a New Testament. When Paul was writing the book of Romans, the book of Mark hadn't even been written yet. And that's, the we believe, most likely the first uh, gospel to have been written. With like Romans, possibly have been written around 57, 58 AD. Mark, probably not until 66 to 70 AD. So there was no New Testament except for probably oral traditions passed down because that was the way the Jewish community worked a lot. They spent a lot of time um, memorizing, telling stories verbally. So this Christian sect of the Jews, which is really what this would have been, I'm sure they may have called themselves Christians. I know that they were called the way, but it was really, it wasn't that far removed at this point. Now, the other thing is that probably Paul didn't think of this as Scripture. I can't imagine Paul writing down, you know what, I'm going to write a new book of the Bible. I don't, think that was what he, I don't think that was his goal at all. But what that means is that with him not thinking of this as Scripture and not having a New Testament to work from, everything that he's coming at is coming from an Old Testament point of view that has been ta uh, tempered now with the story of Jesus and his ministry and his death and resurrection. Now, probably one of the most important things to remember about reading Paul is Paul is not a guy that was all about sound bites. You can't take Paul in small chunks. You can't just nibble at Paul. Paul takes a long time to say anything. Paul could tell you the sky is blue, but here's where he would do it. He was going, you know, the sky is blue, because blue is the color that God made the sky because he decided that blue would be a good color for the sky because blue is a good color for the sky. I mean, that's the way Paul talks. I mean, he would be in circles, and he could take a long time to say the most simple thing 
But when you get into real theology in Paul, you can't take a single verse. You can't take even a small portion of what he says. You've got to read chapters in Paul before you really get to understand what he's really getting at. So with that in mind, we're going to work through Paul a little bit. Well, I'm going to start in Romans chapter 1. Also keep in mind that these guys did not write in chapters. Chap- the chapters, the chapter breaks were put in later. And as you study the Bible, there's times when you go, man, why did they even break that there? Because you'll see that there's a thought that was needing to be continued, but when they were compiling it, they put a chapter break in, and, uh, and it can seem to split a thought in half. So you have to keep that in mind too when you're reading, especially with Paul. But now... So I want to start in chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. No discussion of Christian faith can begin without this understanding. If you come from anywhere else at all, you've already lost the debate, and rightly so. It would be like a Mormon trying to teach me Mormonism from the Book of Mormon, trying to convince me that 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 would be right, or for a Muslim to say, here, the Quran says this, and so you should believe it. You know, um, maybe not exactly like that, but I think you get where I'm coming from. Doctrine can only come from Scripture, period. And you have to, as a, as a Christian, you have to come from it that, that we believe in the gospel and that the just live by faith. Anywhere else, you've already, lost your, you've already lost your debate. Now, the rest of the chapter is clear that God has clear guidance for us and that following our own ways leads to destructive wickedness, and God cannot accept that. Any time in the Old Testament, almost every time in the Old Testament, if there was the phrase, and they, everybody did what they thought was right. If you see that one, you know that destruction is coming close behind that. Because we're stupid people. We're stupid, and we will screw it up every time if we try to do it on our own. Every single time. And so that's what he's getting at. God has guidance for us, and our own ways will lead to destruction. Verse 18 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The wrath of God, that's an interesting term. I think it's just I think it's just the way they understood things then. It's talking about consequence. When you when we try to do it our own way, we just fail. It's just it's consequence. And it got termed as the wrath of God. So that's the that's that's the gist of chapter one. Chapter two, verse one. Um, well, chapter two, chapter two will teach us that it is God, not man, who will judge it as he wills it. So in chapter two, verse one, therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are to um, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. Judgment between human beings is unacceptable. Therefore, it is absolutely wrong, since we started this discussion on the Sabbath, but it's absolutely wrong to judge against someone for not keeping the Sabbath or any of the Ten Commandments. 
Because whether you think it or not, you are guilty of all ten. In some way, every one of us have broken every one of those commandments. It's in our nature. So trying to say that someone is bad for having broken a commandment, that's unacceptable. But now this is not the same thing as recognizing bad behavior. How can... How, can, how could we possibly function in life if we weren't able to recognize a bad action? Somebody steals from a grocery store, that's bad. We know it's bad. Somebody commits adultery, it's bad. We know it's bad. What we don't know is why the person did that. We don't know motivations. We don't know their heart. We don't know anything going on. A couple gets divorced. Somebody might be, oh, that husband must have been terrible. Maybe the wife was terrible, but we don't know. So this is why we cannot judge people. We can judge the action, but we cannot judge people. Continuing in uh, Romans 2, verses starting in verse 6. God will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. Did you hear those two words? God will render to, according to his deeds, and eternal life is to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. Paul understood that doing good leads to godly rewards. These rewards are, and these rewards are available for all of mankind. It was assumed up until this point that everything was just for the Jews. But now it was going to spread to everyone. We were just talking in our quarterly class today about how it started with Israel, Judea, Samaria, and the entire world. That message of the gospel was going to go everywhere, and it was going to be available for everyone. And so this message of helping you to do the right things was going to be for everybody. Um, in verse 10, glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. So Paul is speaking universally. Truth is truth no matter who you are, and it's there for everybody. Uh, verse 12, for as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. Now this is very important. The law is necessary for our existence. Without it, we would perish in ignorance. Whether we knew it or not, we would perish if we didn't know the law. So God's grace begins with giving us the law. He didn't have to tell us what was right and what was wrong, but we would be no good without it. We would be no good not knowing it because just because you don't know it doesn't mean that you're not going to be affected by by the consequences of it. So God's grace actually begins by giving us the law. His grace begins by giving us the law. Does a parent not tell their kids how to be safe? No. Don't touch the stove. Be careful on the jungle gym. Don't play in the street. Don't run next to the swimming pool. We tell them that so they don't hurt themselves. Well, that's what's happening here. So in, this, in continuing in chat, uh, verse 12, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. So there will be judgment based upon the law. There will be some kind of judgment based upon the law. 
So God, in his mercy and out of grace, gave us the law so we would know how to conduct ourselves in harmony with his creation. That's the point of the law. God made a universe. That universe works in a certain fashion. We have to work with it. If we don't work with it, it will eliminate us. You cannot survive if you don't work with it. Uh, Verse 13, for not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. So this is Paul in what's known as his greatest work, known worldwide by Christians to be his wonderful work about grace. And he's telling us that the doers of the law will be justified. I don't think it's a contradiction. So we move to uh, verse 25. He starts talking about some interesting old-fashioned things here. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law, but if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? It's a lot of circumcision. And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. See, I told you, he goes on and on and on when he talks. I'm not done yet. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. That's Paul taking a long time to say that it's possible to know the law without having it, uh, without having it specifically handed to you. Maybe you don't know it to the letter, but certainly to the spirit of it. Do we have to be taught not to kick puppies? Most of us know. We know it's wrong to steal. We know that because we don't want to be stolen from. We know it's wrong to commit murder. We don't want to be murdered, you know. So it's possible to understand the law without having it specifically here. This is what you do. But so there's some context here. Think of the time. Circumcision, I don't know, it was kind of a weird sign, and God's going to have to explain it to me someday fully. But it was a symbol of not relying on your own flesh for your salvation. I mean, it's a very literal way of looking at not relying on your own flesh. You're going to be reminded that for a long time. But why would a person of that time period not have been circumcised? The only reason would be because they didn't know about it. I mean, they didn't know this was a requirement that God had had. That would be the only reason. If he's talking to people who aren't circumcised, they didn't know about it. So this is why they could still receive praise from God, even though they hadn't fulfilled the requirement. Now, in Romans 3, Paul establishes that we have all sinned, and God is just in judging us as he sees fit. I'm going to go all the way to verse 21 here. Now, here, Paul starts to take a new tack. And when I see when you probably heard the word, we're going to take a new tack. That's a nautical term. I don't know if you know that. If you've ever watched the America's Cup or any of the America's Cup, you'll see these guys will be, they'll be sailing their ship and they're catching a certain wind and they'll be going kind of at an angle and then they'll, they'll holler, tacking! And the, 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 the sail will move to the other side of the ship. Everybody moves and all of a sudden the ship is moving this way and then they'll tack and then they'll be moving this way. But they're catching that same wind and they're still heading in the same general direction. They're, they're trying to get to a certain spot They're catching this wind to get to there. 
but they're doing that by slightly getting a different tack on it. So they're kind of weaving like this, but it's important. They're on the same, they're still in the same wind. But he says, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So he's saying is God is righteous all on his own. We know this because what we see in his law and in the words of those who have known him. So we know that we know that God is righteous because we could see how his law has affected the world. We see how the law keeps things in check. He's not above his law. I mean, he keeps his law too, but it's not his law that makes him just. He's, he is just because he is God. Now, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's a pretty popular or a famous quote. We, we've all heard that one. But what that's saying is that if we have all sinned, then the law is not enough to save us. Something else is needed. Verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And in verse 28, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Now, wait a minute. Didn't we just read in chapter 2, verse 13, that said the doers of the law will be justified? Is Paul contradicting himself? I don't think so. Verse 31 do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. How do we establish a law? Well, what good is a law if nobody keeps it? Until you have a people who are ready to keep a law, the law is meaningless. You know, um, well, I was going to use a, I was going to say speed limits, but whoever drives the speed limit, but you know, I mean, we all kind of know that the speed limit on the road is really more the, how fast the traffic is going, you know. Um, but if, you, if, people don't, if, if people aren't willing to keep the law, then it's kind of a worthless law. But so through our faith, we establish the law by doing it, by keeping up with it. Now, in Romans chapter 4, we get into Abraham's example, starting in verse 1. Yeah. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So again, I keep getting drawn back to that 2.13. Paul wouldn't have said that the doers of law would be justified unless he meant it. He's not contradicting himself, so he's got to be building on something here. So if we are justified by doing the law, but not justified to God for doing the law. Who are we justified to? I begin to think of a, of, a, of a court of law. You have a judge. The judge is going to be the one who places sentence. But in the more severe cases, it's not the judge who determines whether you're guilty. It's actually the jury. The jury determines guilt the judge then decides what to do with you. Who would be our jury in this case? The world, the universe. Everybody who's watching this little blue speck to see what's going to happen, that is who we end up being justified to. Because by the time God places a judgment of guilty or not guilty, before that has happened, we've had a jury that says they did the right things or they did the wrong things. So it makes the judgment 
more just, if you will. Now, verse 4, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. I had to think about this one for a while. In fact, when I was writing my notes, I actually wrote, why? Is this a call to leave works behind? It doesn't make sense in the context of the first part of the book. I mean, he spent a whole couple of chapters worth of talking about the importance of the law. What this means is if we're trying to work our way into salvation, we're barking up the wrong tree. We do not have the power to save ourselves. We do not have even the little inkling of the, of the power to keep ourselves from dying or uh, to raise ourselves up from the dead. Zero. We can't do it. We absolutely cannot do it. We don't have the power. Verse 7, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Impute means to um, credit you, basically. So basically what it's saying is, blessed is the man who God doesn't put your, let you take the blame or take the credit for your sin. So this is not license to sin. No, this is God's grace manifested in his forgiveness. No forgiveness is needed if, the wrong, if no wrong has been committed. If there is no law, then there is no wrong. If there's no wrong, then there's no need for forgiveness. If there's no need for forgiveness, then there is no need for grace. And if there's no need for grace, then what are we talking about? Verse 9, does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith has accounted, was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted, while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. Circumcision here is representative of the law. You, we could almost substitute lawkeeper and lawbreaker um, for circumcised and uncircumcised. Not, not lawbreaker, but we could, we could substitute that in there because that really was it was. It was a sign. But Abraham received something special when he did keep it. So he, he, was, he was considered righteous before, before he became circumcised, but when he did it, he received something special. Verse 11, and he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith. A seal of the righteousness of the faith. What is a seal? A seal is a symbol that gets put on documents. Uh, when the president speaks, he's got the presidential seal. Um, sometimes it was done with a ring when they would, put an envelope, wax, and they would put their seal in there. You'd know who it came from. Seals generally have three parts. They have the name of the person who's in authority, their territory, and their title. In this case, the law speaks to all of these. Specifically, the Sabbath commandment really does fit as a seal to the entire law because when you read the Sabbath commandment, it has the name of the person in authority the Lord your God. It has his territory, the heavens and the earth. And it has his title of creator. So when we keep the law, we receive that seal, just like Abraham did. He was already considered righteous for his faith, but when he was given a specific instruction and he kept it, he was sealed. Uh, verse 14, For those who are of the law are heirs, Faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. Oh, I'm sorry. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made uh, void and the promise made of no effect. 
So if salvation was based upon our own actions, then actual faith would be unnecessary. If you were able to be saved just by doing stuff, you wouldn't actually have to believe in anything because it would just be a cause and effect, but it's not. But we're made responsible when we know what's wrong. Paul continues to describe the absolute faithness of Abraham through the chapter. Um, In verse 24, it, righteousness, shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Christ was crucified because we are sinners. And he was raised because God thinks we are worth saving. All of this leads Paul to come to a bit of a conclusion of the thought. It's really not a conclusion because he continues re, uh, writing for quite a while in Romans, but it's, it's the beginning of, of, the, of, sort of the beginning of a conclusion, but where he wrote, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are justified by faith that has been evidenced by how we keep God's law. People know we have been saved because we keep his law. Faith must be shown. Otherwise, it's no real faith at all. Only by showing our trust in God, by following his instructions, can the world witness our faith. God, in his grace, gave us his law so we would not perish without it. And through his grace, he picks up where we lack. We have no power to save ourselves, only the ability to demonstrate our trust in and love for God. So it is by the combination of law and grace that God has saved us.